Well, good morning again. Do we have any extra people this morning? I don't mean people that have never been here before, and I don't mean people that we don't want here, like extra people. I mean people who are extra. Extra. Do you know who you are? Extra as in over the top. If you're not sure if you're extra, ask your family, and they will, they will tell you. You don't do things halfway. You're always all in. You want everyone to notice the effort that you make. You go big. You don't go home. Your porch maybe is the one that has 20 pumpkins on it instead of just a couple. You have a Christmas tree in every room of your house because why not? Your earrings match everything else that you're wearing. Or maybe, like me, your kayak has too many accessories on it. It's not always a bad thing. It just means that you're super excited about something and you want other people to notice it. Our message this morning, our sermon is about a woman who thought Jesus was worth the extra effort. She was super excited about Jesus and she didn't hold back. She didn't care who knew it. She was an ultimate disciple. And Mark placed her story right between two examples of terrible followers to make her, sta her story stand out even more. As we look at the Gospel of Mark, we've been talking about the crown and the cross. The first half of the, of the book was showing Jesus as a man of action who was worthy of wearing the crown. People started recognizing that perhaps this was the Messiah. And then halfway through the book, at chapter 8 onwards, there was a shift, and he started to tell his disciples numerous times, I am going to die. This kingdom that you've been looking for is a spiritual kingdom. I'm going to die, I'm going to be buried, but I'm going to rise again. He told them that three times. And yet they were astonished when all of those things happened. Jesus is now in Jerusalem. It's the final week. Sometimes we call that Holy Week. And he's getting closer and closer to the cross. His public teaching is done. He shared with his disciples some of the signs of the destruction of uh, the Jerusalem temple, which were coming. And now he's enjoying a meal with some of his closest friends in Bethany. We're in chapter 14. And if you have a Bible or if you want to grab one in the pew in front of you, we're in Mark chapter 14. Our parallel passages this morning are Matthew 26 and John 12. Most of the Gospels tell the same story, but sometimes in a different way. The only story or narrative in the Gospel of Luke that talks about a woman anointing Jesus happens much earlier in the mystery, in the Gospel, and he's surrounded by Pharisees. So we believe that this happened two different times, the Luke occasion was different than what's happening here in Mark, Matthew, and John. So if you missed last week, if you're watching online and you're joining us for the very first time, or maybe you're here with us for the first time, you can watch our messages on our website. You can find them at YouTube, and you can catch up um, for the past year and get up to speed with where we are with the Gospel of Mark. Before we read this morning in chapter 14, let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you again for bringing us together this morning that we could remember your sacrifice for us. We could remember the Passover. We could celebrate communion. 
and coming together as brothers and sisters in Christ, we could say thank you. Thank you for that sacrifice. Thank you for your blood that was poured out for our sins. Jesus, as we look into the gospel of Mark this morning and we continue to see your story unfolding, I pray that you would give us open ears and open hearts, that our hearts would be tender to hear your word and the things that need to change would be highlighted and that your spirit would bring them to our attention, that we would go away changed because of what we've heard in your word this morning. Lord, I ask your blessing on all that we say and do today, that, that it may bring glory to Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. So Mark chapter 14, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11, and listen again for this story about this woman sandwiched between the two bad examples of followers of Jesus. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like this? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Mark is telling this story, and he places it, as I said, in between these, this plot to capture and kill Jesus, and then Judas saying, yes, I will betray him. In Luke and John, it's placed differently chronologically. So it's just interesting that Mark is telling us stories and presenting them to us so that we see them in context of other things that are happening. So we see the leaders plotting to kill Jesus. As I mentioned, Jesus had prophesied that the temple would be destroyed. And just before that, he had walked through the temple. He had thrown out the money changers. He knocked over their tables and he said, this should be a house of prayer and you've made it a den of thieves. He was in their face saying, you've messed up, religious leaders. You're doing this all wrong. And they were mad. They were ticked off and they were plotting not only to just get rid of him, but they wanted to kill him. Mark wants us to see the contrast between these hypocritical religious leaders and Judas, one of his close 12 disciples, all with different reactions to what happens. So Mark tells us it's now just two days before Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This explanation 
was not found in the Gospel of Matthew because that was written primarily to the Jews. They knew what Passover was. But Mark's writing to Romans, he's writing to Gentiles, and he said Passover is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He's explaining a little bit more for the readers of that day and hopefully, hopefully, hopefully for us too. As I pointed out a few weeks back when we talked about Passover, this is an annual feast. It was celebrating the time that Israel was saved from slavery in Egypt. And every year, hundreds of thousands or maybe even over a million Jews came from around the country to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And the father, the head of the household, presented a perfect lamb to be sacrificed on behalf of his family. And again, giving thanks to God. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for giving us a promised land. And through seven days, they ate nothing but unleavened bread. This was a call to holiness. The leaven was a symbol of sin, and so they would sweep their house clean of any leaven, any yeast. And then they would only eat what we would know as matzah bread, quick bread that they could make quickly because they were getting ready to leave Egypt at any moment and when God called them. And so this feast went on for seven days, and Jesus is celebrating it with his disciples. The God who is sovereign, the God who is in complete control, orchestrated all of this. Jesus' whole life of 33 years so that he would be sacrificed as the lamb in Passover. Thousands of years earlier, he created that event and he said, every year I want you to remember this and now here is the Messiah, the perfect Passover lamb. What did the religious leaders want to do? They wanted to wait until after the feast. They didn't want to cause an uproar. They didn't want the crowds to be mad at them because a lot of them were starting to follow Jesus. They were saying, maybe he is our Messiah. The religious leaders were politicians. They were worried about public opinion. And we know exactly what that's like today, right? It's still going on. Let's make the people happy. Let's say what they want to hear. Let's do what they want to see us do. And anything dirty, anything that we want to do quietly, we're going to do without them knowing about it. But God had a plan. God wanted this to happen exactly at the timing that he wanted so that Jesus would be seen as that Passover lamb. And then we fade. If this was a movie, we would cut to black and fade in on a little house in Bethany. It's a suburb of Jerusalem. It's on the other side of the Mount of Olives. So last week when Jesus was speaking to his disciples, he was seated at the Mount of Olives looking out at the temple in Jerusalem. And now they've gone to the village of Bethlehem. Mark tells us that Jesus is with his disciples having a meal in the house of a man named Simon who was known as a leper. Simon was a common name. That was Peter's real name. He was Simon Peter. But this particular man was known as a leper and probably Jesus had healed him from his leprosy. But he was still known as Simon the leper. Everybody in town knew him that way. And as he's walking around clean and healed, he was a testimony to Jesus. John 12 tells us that Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, was also seated at the table. 
His sisters, Mary and Martha, were serving. And again, in their custom, the men would have been seated around the table for an event like this, and the women would have been preparing the meal and serving them. Mary and Martha were there too. Verse 6 says that while he reclined at table, that's Middle Eastern custom for eating. And you've probably seen the Last Supper painting by da Vinci, right? It's a formal painting where they're all seated around one side of the table so that it's a perfect picture. Do you ever notice on sitcoms that family always sit on just one side of the table so you have a perfect view of the family sitting there? They, we don't do that in real life, right? We sit all the way around the table. But da Vinci painted that way. He had them sitting in chairs as people in his day would have. But in Middle Eastern custom, they would have been reclining on cushions on a really low table, just a foot or so off the ground. And they would eat in that position because they thought it was better for their, their digestion to have their body stretched out so they could eat and digest their food. While he's eating, a woman, Mark says, anointed his head with very expensive ointment. It's an alabaster flask, and it's filled with what he, what he calls pure nard or spike nard. Giving gifts to the poor was one of the customs of Passover, and that was still going on. So this woman gave a gift of great value because of her great love for Jesus. In John's gospel, he tells us that it was Mary. Mark didn't give us her name, but John tells us that Mary, who was the one often seated at Jesus' feet, listening to his words, ready to carry them out, she was an ultimate disciple. She wanted to learn from the Lord. John 12 also says that in addition to pouring some on his head, she poured some on his feet and wiped that with her tears and with her hair. This was a beautiful moment where she gave everything. This ointment or perfume would have filled the whole house with beautiful fragrance. And her act of worship should have been a sweet aroma to everyone there. But instead, some were spiteful, some were critical. And they said to themselves, why was this wasted? It could have been sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor. As we've talked about before, a denarii was one day's wages. So over 300 denarii would have been like a year's wages for a common laborer, someone who is just a regular worker, not an elite politician, not the poorest, but somewhere in the middle. So today, $30,000, $50,000, if you think about someone's earnings, that's expensive perfume. I've seen some expensive perfume in the stores that's probably not the ones that they're spraying on you as you walk by, the stuff that's really expensive that's in the case that you can't afford. This was $30,000, $50,000 for one jar. One of the commentaries said that this alabaster flask was sealed. It probably came from India, and it might have been a family heirloom, something that sat on a shelf that was never opened, never touched, and the family maybe passed it on to generation after generation, or maybe it was part of Mary's dowry that was never used. Do you have any things like that at home? 
that are sitting on your shelf that have never been opened, never been used. Maybe it's the fancy china or something that someone brought home from a uh, vacation overseas, and there it sits, never gets used, but it's there. Mary takes that flask, and it says she breaks it open. So the neck, instead of this jar, it would have been a thinner neck, and she broke it. She snapped the top off, poured it on Jesus' head, because she was going to use it all. She wasn't going to use just one little drop. She saved nothing for herself. Just like the widow that Jesus pointed out to his disciples in the temple. Remember, she gave her two last pennies, and Jesus said, she's given more than anyone else. She gave all that she had. And our description here in Mark says she has done all that she could. So they're complaining. They're saying, why was this wasted? You just poured out $50,000 on his head. We could have taken care of the poor with that. Mark says in verse 3 that she broke open the flask and poured it over his head. If we turn over just a page in Mark 14 to where he's celebrating the Passover, verse 22 says, while they were eating, he took the bread and after blessing it, he broke it and said, this is my body. Then he took the cup and he had given thanks and he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, broken and poured out. Again, through the Miracle of the Holy Spirit inspiring these words. Mark uses the same language. This sacrifice that was broken and poured out just like Jesus. Just like Jesus giving everything. There was nothing left. Every drop of his blood poured out for us, for our sin. There was no turning back. He died in your place and mine. Broken and poured out. Those are words of ultimate sacrifice. It's not, let me see what I've got in my pocket. Oh, I've got an extra 10 or an extra 20. I'll, I'll give that. This is, what do I have? I'm going to give it all. Mary was the ultimate disciple, just as we're seeing Jesus as the ultimate sacrifice. The scent of that expensive perfume, as I said, filled the house. Any of you with teenagers know how the scent of Acts can fill a house. If you're a teacher, it fills the hallways. When somebody has put on a lot of perfume or cologne, it just goes everywhere. But instead of being blessed, instead of them saying, isn't that amazing? Doesn't that smell great? The disciples, some of them were mad and they thought it was a waste. John 12 gives us more insight. Just as he named Mary as the one who poured out this offering on Jesus, it says, in John, it was Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one about to betray him, who said, why wasn't this sold and given to the poor? Not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief who kept the money bag for Jesus and the disciples as they traveled around. And whenever he wanted, he just helped himself into that bag and took out extra money. If he wasn't 
filled at dinner, he could go get some extra of something. Maybe he took some and sent it home to his family. We don't know, but John tells us that all through his discipleship, through those three years, he was stealing from the rest of them. John wanted those names remembered. Jesus jumps to Mary's rescue and he stands up to her. Look at verse 6. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? Why are you giving her a hard time? What she has done is beautiful. She's anointed me in advance for my burial. This is not a man who was surprised by the cross. He wasn't shocked that he was killed. He knew it was coming. And he continued to tell his close followers, I am going to die. And he said, Mary has anointed me in advance for my burial. The Jewish custom of the day was to pour some kind of perfume on the body as it was wrapped and buried to kind of hide the smell of death. They would have the body out for a while and then they would bury it in the ground and they wanted to hide some of that smell so they would use perfume. Maybe Mary understood this better than his disciples. Maybe she realized that she was doing this in preparation for his burial or maybe she just thought, how can I show Jesus how much I love him? Another thought is that Jesus is being anointed as Messiah and King. Mary poured perfume on his head just as the prophets poured drops of oil on the king as he's about to be crowned. In just a few days, Roman soldiers are going to twist together thorns into the shape of a ring and they're going to jam it onto his head, causing his head to bleed as these thorns dig in and they mock him, and they put a purple robe on and say, Hail, King of the Jews. They crowned him, and perhaps this anointment was just another symbol of his recognition as Messiah. Besides defending Mary and saying, Why are you yelling at her when she's done something beautiful? Jesus also gives an important lesson on ministry to the poor. Reflecting on what was taught in Deuteronomy 15. Deuteronomy 15.11 says, There will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, to the poor in your land. God commanded his people to be generous to the poor, to take care of those in need. Loving people with no ulterior motives is selfless and it's unconditional love and that shows God's love to other people. When we help people who we know can't repay the debt, we're showing pure love. But Jesus said, there are always going to be poor people around you. You'll always have poor people that you can serve anytime you want, but you're not always going to have me. In just a few days, he's going to die and be buried and then he knows he's returning to heaven. Jesus wasn't saying ignore compassion, ignore ministry to those who are poor. He was saying there will always be poor people and you can't truly fix that. You can't solve all of the world's problems. But your priority right now should be on me. Let's spend these last moments together instead of attacking Mary for this great sacrifice that she made. 
The priority of the church needs to be sharing the gospel. As a church, that needs to be our focus. But we still can care for those in need around us. But Jesus is saying, make sure your focus is on Jesus. Make sure that the gospel is the forefront of your ministry and not trying to solve all of the world's problems because we know we can't. James 2, 15 to 17 in the early church, this is James, the brother of Jesus, says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warm, be filled, without actually giving him the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. When James says brothers or sisters, he's talking about fellow Christians. And he's saying, especially within the church, other believers, make sure you're taking care of the body of believers that you have access to. Take care of the church within you. And we don't recognize or say this every month, but out at the offering box are little envelopes that say communion offering. And every month, we, it's just a reminder that we add a little bit extra. We have a fund, a benevolent fund, that if we hear about needs within the church family or close by people, then we're helping people with that money. So that's a way that you can be part of that ministry. Jesus was saying, take care of those in need, but don't let the focus just be on those acts of kindness. Make sure that it's sharing the gospel. And he points in verse 9 that Mary was an ultimate disciple, one who worshipped and valued Jesus more than anything else, one who humbly sat at his feet wanting to hear and learn, not wanting to miss a single word from the Master, one who doesn't care what anyone else thinks or even says, but responds to please God wholeheartedly. One who sacrificially gave for the glory of God. And wherever the gospel is proclaimed, Jesus said, in the whole world, what she has done for me will be remembered. Here we are over 2,000 years later talking about Mary and talking about this great sacrifice. What a wonderful example of a disciple, a follower, to give all that she had for the glory of Jesus. It wasn't so that she would be remembered, but it was that Jesus would be highlighted and glorified. And then we have our final two verses, Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve. The complete opposite of an ultimate disciple. He was handpicked by Jesus. He spent three years following Jesus, three years listening to all of his teaching, seeing him heal disease, seeing him give sight to the blind, make the lame walk, feed thousands of people just by giving thanks to God and seeing food multiplied. Judas saw way more than Mary could have ever seen because he lived with Jesus for three years. And instead of continuing to follow Jesus, Judas makes plans with the chief priests to betray him. Matthew 26, 15 tells us that the agreed upon, uh, agreed upon amount was 30 pieces of silver. In that day, that was the price of a slave's life. You could buy a slave 
and that was the cost of Jesus' life. Maybe this pouring out of ointment was the straw that broke the camel's back. Instead of Jesus saying, Mary, why did you waste that? He said, what she has done is beautiful. And Judas saw $40,000, $50,000 just pouring down Jesus' head, his feet, and onto the floor. How could Jesus waste all of this? This kingdom is not about making me rich. This kingdom is not going to be about me getting a position of power and ruling over people. This kingdom is crazy. I don't want to be part of this. And so he goes to the chief priests, all of his hopes and dreams for power, position, and wealth dried up in that moment. And he said, I will betray him to you. We don't know if John knew that Judas was a thief beforehand or if it's only at the end of the story that he's retelling that he says, and by the way, he was helping himself. They were probably shocked that Judas, one of the 12, would have betrayed him. Now the religious leaders have an inside man, one of his closest followers who's going to sell him out, and he can do it secretly. He can do it quietly. They don't have to wait until after the feast. Again, God's timing and his providence and sovereignty make whatever needs to happen, happen, so that God is lifted up and glorified. Verse 11 sadly says, they were glad. The idea of the death destruction of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, brought them joy. Just like Mary, Judas's name would also be remembered for all time. But his name has become synonymous with the word traitor. Don't be a Judas. He's the example of the worst kind of a follower, the worst type of disciple who's there only for personal gain, for greed. He had no love for Jesus. His interest was not in bringing God glory. It was only in feeding his own selfish desires. Our ultimate disciple was Mary. She loved Jesus fully. She loved him completely, sacrificially, unconditionally. And Jesus calls you to the same thing. If you are ready to become a follower of Jesus Christ, that means you have to recognize that, first of all, you need him. Jesus is not just a nice addition to your life. It's not just something to do on Sunday mornings because you don't like sleeping in. It's an all-out <clears throat> new life focus. I want to follow Jesus. I want to give everything for him because he gave, every, he gave everything for me. If you've recognized that you're a sinner and you can't fix it yourself, the Bible has good news. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. This verse has good news in that you can have eternal life, you can have a relationship with Jesus. <clears throat> Excuse me. You can be forgiven of your sins. But it has bad news too. If you don't believe, if you don't choose to follow him, you will not have eternal life. And the passage goes on to say, you will spend eternity in hell, those that don't believe in him. 
will face eternal punishment. If you're ready to take that step, if you're ready to become an ultimate disciple and follow Jesus, to give thanks to him by offering him back your life, to change the trajectory of your life, then come talk to me after the service. If you're watching online, find me through the website. I'd love to tell you how you can become a follower of Jesus Christ. For those of you that have already done this, that have been following him, giving your all is part of the Christian life. As I said, it's not just adding Jesus to your regular routine and saying, isn't that nice? Now I've got Jesus too. It means making sacrifices. Are you willing to give up anything and everything for the sake of the gospel? Will you choose to serve him even if it's not popular with your family and friends? Are you willing to share the name of Jesus Christ with other people? Do you love people? Do you care about their physical needs? Jesus, through his word, said, it's not enough to just say, God bless you, but it's to go out and help somebody. So when you see or hear of a need, God calls us to show his love and compassion and mercy to people and for them to recognize that our love is unconditional, just like God's. As a church, we need balance. Our ministry and our message has to center on the gospel. It can't fix every social injustice or concern. But we are called to help the needy around us. Scripture over and over again talks about widows and orphans, especially those without family or means to take care of themselves. Help them. Ultimate disciples are willing to give everything for the glory and for the love of Jesus Christ. Are you ready to be extra? To give all? And for other people to notice just how much you love and care about Jesus Christ? Are you willing to be an ultimate disciple? Because he alone is worthy. He alone is worthy of our honor, our glory, our praise. He alone is worthy of us giving everything because he's the one who loves you more than anyone else. Mark's going to come. We're going to close in a final song. Please bow with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the way Mark pictures Mary as an ultimate disciple and sandwiches her story between the religious leaders, the hypocrites who wanted everyone to notice them, who wanted everyone to thank them and and to lift them up. And then Judas, the ultimate betrayer, the one who turned you over to the authorities. We see Mary's love, her unconditional sacrifice, her giving her all for you. We thank you, Lord, that we have an example like Mary to follow. And I pray that you'd help each one of us to continue to love you more and more, to sit at your feet, to learn your word, and then to share it with others. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God our Father at the coming of his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.